Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get on with this week's Spikes podcast, I just wanted to tell you a bit about our new daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. When you sign up, every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spiked's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team, usually Tom Slater or myself. Spiked is producing more content than ever, and I know you want to keep up with all the fantastic articles, essays, podcasts, blogs, and interviews that we're publishing every single day. The best way to not miss a thing is to sign up to Today on Spiked. It's really easy. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters to sign up now. Now, on with the Spiked podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and with me this week, we have Spiked's editor, Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the government's race report, the Batley Grammar cartoon controversy, and vaccine passports. The report found no evidence of institutional racism. At the moment, people are just going around declaring institutional racism. And what they've done, they've devalued the term. I some of the language used by this report appalling. You know, the idea that it's in our heads denies the lived experience. I think this report actually takes us backwards in the debate on race. The government's long-awaited review into racism was published this week. The Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities, in its report, presented an almost polar opposite view to the one that's come to dominate the race debate in Britain and beyond. It found no evidence that Britain is an institutionally racist country. Instead, it found that ethnic minority Brits have made extraordinary progress in education and the world of work. Ethnic minorities, with the exception of the Afro-Caribbean group, tend to perform just as well, if not better, in schools as the white majority. The ethnicity pay gap has fallen to just 2.3% overall, and it's practically non-existent for workers under the age of 30. Racism still exists, it said, but it's not the underlying cause of inequality. Social class and family structure play a much larger role, it argued. Brendan, what have you made of this? I think it's been completely extraordinary. And in some ways, the response to the report is more striking than the report itself. I mean, the report is obviously very interesting. I think it's quite a brave report. It's basically overturning the orthodoxy of the past 20 years or so. Right from the McPherson report in 1999 onwards, we've had this almost founding myth of the new elites, which is that institutional racism exists in the UK. Racism runs through all institutions, all groups, all educational systems. That really has become the kind of orthodoxy of the elites over the past 20 years. And this report really says that it's not true, that they've mm. not found evidence to substantiate the idea that Britain is an institutionally racist country. So to look at it in its historical context, this really is a swipe against the orthodoxy that was established by McPherson and which was embraced by pretty much every wing of the establishment. 
and the attempt to establish a new view, which is that racism is declining and Britain is actually a pretty good place to live if you're from an ethnic minority group. So it's quite a challenging, provocative report. And it's interesting. Having said that, it won't be fantastically revealing to people who read Spiked Mm. because Spiked and other people have been arguing for quite some time that the idea that racism is widespread and deeply embedded is a myth. And in fact, as lots of angry identitarians have pointed out, some of the report's contributors have either written for Spiked or been spoken to by Spiked over the years. So so we and others have been developing some of these ideas that institutional racism is a bit of a myth. So the report's interesting, but it's the response to it that has been mind-blowing mm. because there has been this complete hysteria, this complete meltdown amongst the commentariat, left-wingers, the race relations industry. I mean, they are absolutely gobsmacked that someone has dared to call into question their gospel truths, their founding myths, especially the myth of institutional racism. And that hysteria, I think, is the most striking thing because it really demonstrates that the identitarian elites, obviously, they get their moral authority from the idea that Britain is a racist country and from the corresponding idea that we need people like them to govern us and to police us and to re-educate us. So their whole moral and political authority is built on these myths. And that's why they are absolutely hopping mad and fuming that someone has dared to call those myths into question. So it's a really interesting clash between two wings of the elite, one of which is trying to push a reasonable fact-based view, I think, which is that Britain is a is an increasingly non-racist country. And the other side is really trying to protect its own power and its own social and moral and political power that it has developed through the politics of identity. The problem with that hysterical side of the discussion is that in order to maintain their power, they must continually propagate the idea that this is a horrible, disgusting country full of horrible, disgusting people. And what they're essentially saying is to the government is, how dare you imply that British people are nice? How mm. dare you imply that Britain is a nice country? What kind of madman are you to say such a thing? So they are deeply invested in the idea that this is a racist country. And that just makes their campaigning incredibly divisive and incredibly destructive. So I'm very happy that they've been put on the back foot by this report. Ella? Yeah, it's one of those things where I've always been incredibly sceptical, not just of reports, but also how people respond to reports. Because more often than not, I mean, in the past, they've tend to try and put in, you know, an easy lid on an issue. You know, some people are criticizing the report for not giving the easy answer that they want, i.e. not saying Britain is institutionally racist, case closed. And then there are people on the other side who are saying, in fact, Kunli Oliladi, who was uh, contributed to the report, the director for Voice for Change, was on the BBC earlier this week, talking about the fact that really what the report was supposed to do was to open up a discussion about the way in which race and racism is nuanced in the UK. So, I mean, he pointed to the fact that, for example, the report has, as you've mentioned, Fraser, you know, found some things to be celebrated, like, you know, the pay gap between black and white employees once they're in employment is, uh, you know, discrimination on the basis of pay is almost non-existent now that there's, you know, once people get into a job, they're not discriminated against. But he then pointed out the fact that, of course, getting into the job, actually getting the highly paid jobs is where black people find it more difficult than white people. In fact, he talks about the fact that there are still vestiges of the history of racism that are left putting barriers between people. And so it's the whole point is it's 
complicated. It's difficult. It's not something that you can easily just stick a label of institutional racism on. In fact, one of the most fascinating parts of the report is in Sewell's introduction, in which he talks about the fact that one of the main problems they found was not necessarily you know, hard evidence in which policies were instituted in companies saying you must not hire someone with, you know, this color skin or this type of hair or whatever it was. But it was that there was an underlying mistrust, he used the word mistrust, about how people perceive their role in society, how black people perceive their relationship with the police, how white employers perceive black people. It's in this really murky, muddy kind of world where you can't quite pin data onto it. And the reason why that's so important is because continuously demanding that, you know, the government and educationists and policymakers support an an deeply pessimistic view of the UK as this inherently scummy, bigoted, you know, hostile place for black people to live and work is only going to feed that mistrust, is only going to, in the end, limit people's, black people's ability to achieve as well as other people. I mean, I was actually, I went back to the book, There Ain't No Black in the Union Jack by Paul Gilroy, which was published 20 years ago this year. This isn't an old idea. He opens on the fact that he talks about in the past, racism might have been different, might have been more overt, but that today there is a new form of racism coming about, which looks at the positioning of blacks, as he calls them, as forever victims, objects rather than subjects. And it's this kind of desire to, that we've talked about many times on this podcast in relation to identity politics from people who have howled at this report and said that it's racist to say that institutional racism isn't a thing anymore, of really demanding that black people be painted as victims. And of course, we know that that isn't the case. We also know that it's, you know, extremely complicated. One of the things that Gilroy talked about 20 years ago, and in fact, that this report today recognises, is that class plays a really important role in all of this. We know that, for example, this isn't new and revelatory, African immigrants, people from Nigeria who are coming in are much more likely to be middle class, much more likely to have access, way more access to society's resources. Their kids, second generation kids of immigrants, are excelling, whereas people from the West Indies, people from Jamaica who are are second generation immigrants don't. And in fact, Caribbean kids are at the lowest end of educational achievement because the fact that most of them are poor. And so the interplay between class and race is really important. That all feeds into the, the fact that this kind of really divisive desire to pit white people against black people, in fact, in the desire to paint England as this institutionally racist, awful place, is breaking any kind of social solidarity or class solidarity or whatever you want to call it that might help these people at the bottom of the rung climb up the ladder, make something of themselves and defeat the instances in which discrimination and unfairness still resides in the world. So it's it's incredibly depressing, as Brendan says, to see the response to it. But it's also, you kind of feel like the same barriers that were up against working class black people 20 years ago when Paul Gilroy was writing are still coming about today when really you have upper middle class commentators, politicians, activists on social media screaming about the fact that Britain is institutionally racist and not actually engaging in the ways in which a discussion about race could help people. You know, you've raised the 
the kind of difference of performance between groups, you know, particularly the striking one is among black Afro-Caribbean children in education and, you know, black African children in education. And one of the things, the other things this report raises is, you know, about the term BAME and why we should drop it because, you know, essentially grouping all non-white groups together disguises the truth about what is happening in society. And I mean, it's not only in, in education where the truth becomes hidden, but I mean, what kind of institutionally racist society is it where actually people of Chinese origin and people of Indian origin are actually the highest earners in Britain? You know, so when you, when you do unpack these things in a more granular detail, the myth of institutional racism, that race is the thing that is holding people back, just crumbles instantly. And we do need to, instead of talking about race, we do need to be talking about class because like, even if you are solely obsessed with the, the fate of black people or some ethnic group, it's hard to think of a kind of policy or outlook or way of doing politics that's class oriented that wouldn't help those people too. What's very strange is the way that we have, you know, developed, and, and this is actually something the report alludes to, is that we seem to have developed almost different policies for different groups. This kind of multicultural approach has been very divisive and very damaging. And, you know, we should learn what if something works for one group, there's no reason why it can't work for another. Because at the end of the day, we are all British, essentially, especially if we're talking about, you know, people growing up here, people going through the British school system. So I'm really pleased with the report in that sense, that it puts a flag in the ground that that says, you know, this is a nice starting point from where the race debate should go from and look, looking towards kind of equality for all. Brendan, final thoughts? Yes, absolutely. Just following on from what Ella said, I think it's really important to just to emphasize the destructive impact that the politics of identity is having. And it seems to me that to the extent that there are still disparities, and clearly there are, this report says there are disparities, but questions the idea that racism is responsible for them, which I think it's right to question that. But to the extent to which there are disparities, I mean, there are numerous reasons for that. It could be a historical hangover. It could be down to cultural phenomenon, which is what the report focuses on to a large extent. But it also seems to me that it's, it's going to be influenced heavily by this depressing misanthropic culture that is coming from the cultural elites, which says Britain is a racist country and which now engages with minority groups through that prism by saying to them, listen, you're going to be a victim of Islamophobia. You're going to be a victim of racism. You probably won't get the job you want to get. If you've got a, a black son at school, he will be discriminated against. He will be treated like crap. He won't get the job he wants. I mean, just this relentless warning, essentially, from the upper middle classes who live very comfortably, as it happens, to usually less well-off ethnic minority groups telling them how repulsive the country they live in is. The idea that that wouldn't have an impact on a community's sense of confidence or their sense of aspiration looks to me like a complete and utter fantasy. And that's what's so ugly about the politics of victimhood. It's really beneficial to the upper classes of society because it's quite nice for them to play the victim. They'll get a newspaper column out of it. They might get a book contract. They'll get on TV or they'll be listened to by politicians or peers or whoever else it is who wants to engage with these kinds of people. They might get funding for a community group. They might be able to make a career out of it. It's a nice thing to play the victim card when you're actually fairly comfortably off. But for less well-off people, playing the victim card's not an option. They need autonomy. They need solidarity. They need collectivity. 
They need confidence because, you know, they need to cut their way through a society, which is often quite unforgiving and quite difficult. So the projection of the politics of victimhood from the upper classes onto certain sections of society, certain ethnic minority groups is such a betrayal of what society more broadly needs, which is social solidarity, a recognition of the problems that we share in common, and in my view, a massive, massive pushback against the poisonous politics of identity and the way it has sown division and depression in this country. Did you know that some of the world's first written records weren't love poems or epic tales, but receipts from merchants who wanted to keep track of how much they'd sold? Or that Uruk, one of the first planned cities in human history, had zoned districts separating residential from commercial areas? And that a chronology of ancient Egypt, created in the 3rd century BCE, is still used by historians today. These are just a few of the fascinating things I've learned since listening to The History and Archaeology of the Bible, available now on The Great Courses Plus. The course leader, Professor Jean-Pierre Isboots, is a National Geographic historian and award-winning filmmaker and author. He's a brilliantly engaging storyteller, and like every expert on The Great Courses Plus, he really knows his stuff. With The Great Courses Plus, there are so many opportunities to learn, to feed your curiosity about virtually anything. You can learn to speak a new language, how to play chess, you can dive into the history of World War II, or explore the universe, and so much more. You get unlimited streaming access to hundreds of videos and audio lectures from some of the best professors and top experts in their fields. And with the Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen on any device. You can learn what you want, when you want to learn it, wherever you are in the world. I want you to try The Great Courses Plus for yourself because I know you're going to love it. So right now, listeners to the Spikes podcast can get a 14-day free trial with unlimited access. Show your support for our show and sign up now through our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. Don't wait. Redeem your free trial at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. Protests erupted last week outside Batley Grammar School in West Yorkshire after word got out that a teacher had shown his pupils a cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad in a religious studies class. The teacher was suspended by the school and a crowd has gathered for days outside the gates demanding his full dismissal, some even demanding his arrest. The teacher now lives in hiding. He has police protection and he fears for his life. Most striking is how few people have come to his defence. His local MP at first congratulated the school for suspending him. The teaching unions have been largely silent, as has civil society more broadly. Brendan, what do you think of this episode? I think it's absolutely horrifying, genuinely, genuinely horrifying. The fact that a teacher, a young teacher by all accounts, although of course we're not going to name him or anything like that, a young teacher in hiding, fearing for his life, simply because he showed an illustration of Muhammad to his kids in a religious studies context. I mean, it's just 
horrific to even think about. And if you read the Daily Mail published an interview with the teacher's father, who said that his son is devastated and crushed and sees no future for himself in Batley, is worried for his life, really distressing stuff to read. And all because he was doing what a teacher is supposed to do, which is teaching his kids to think critically about controversial issues. It's absolutely horrifying. What's most shocking is not necessarily the protesters themselves. I mean, these are religious reactionaries, you know, kind of unpleasant people. You wouldn't expect much more from them than to stand outside a school and disrupt people's lives and make a complete fool of themselves in front of the national media. That's what those people do. What is more shocking than that is the way in which the school very swiftly suspended the teacher. As you say, Fraser, the local MP did not stand by him. Politicians have not made much of a fuss. The supposedly liberal commentariat has looked in the other direction. They don't want to talk about it. They've just abandoned him. They've thrown him to the wolves. They've left him to fend for himself because nobody wants to be seen to be supposedly Islamophobic. No one wants to be seen defending freedom of speech for anything that is seen as being even remotely critical of Islam. So that liberal, yellow-bellied, abject cowardice that has been displayed by various institutions, including, of course, the teachers' unions, that's the most shocking thing here, where they've just left this man alone and not come to his defence. The end result of that, of course, is that it inflames the mob, because the mob gets a very clear sense that it can push further and push harder and demand tougher measures against people who dare to offend Islam. So the cowardice of the elites, I think, inflames the intolerance of the mob. And you have this ugly, unholy marriage between lily-livered sections of the establishment and reactionary elements in certain communities. The end result of that, as we wrote about on Spike this week, the end result is that a teacher is living in fear for his life and teachers across the country will now think twice before having a free, honest, open discussion about Islam and related issues in their classrooms. So this is a complete disaster for education and for freedom of speech. It's always worth thinking about who did the liberal intelligentsia or the, you know, the political elite think they're protecting by siding with this fundamentalist mob? Because what I find really, really disturbing is the way that these complete lunatics, frankly, you know, reactionary religious lunatics, are basically being equated with the voice of ordinary Muslims. Now, I don't doubt for a second that, you know, your average Muslim bristles a little bit at the prospect of a quite nasty cartoon about the Prophet Muhammad, in the same way that a Catholic will not like the image of Piss Christ or mm. something like that. You know, someone even complained to me about my column on Tony Blair for having a pop at Jesus. But they, that doesn't mean that they <laughs> would want that, you know, those people to be sacked or drummed out of public life or arrested or anything like that. So it's, it is really disturbing. The people who think that they're guarding against Islamophobia and anti-Muslim bigotry are equating, you know, what a pretty normal bunch of people in this country with the most vile reactionary segment of that society. And that seems to be one of the most dangerous kind of products of, you know, what we call multiculturalism, where you have these kind of self-appointed community leaders. Certainly there was a, you know, a local imam on the scene in Batley to make a display of himself and to complain about what was going on. One other aspect of their complaints, which was really, really fascinating, was the kind of language that they used. None of them were quoting the Quran or saying explicitly that this is blasphemy, even though we know that that was what was the heart of their complaint. They spoke about it as a, as a safeguarding issue. You know, that this is harmful to 
children. It will weaken their self-esteem. And it's very, very funny and scary the way that essentially sort of religious extremists have managed to kind of appropriate the language of sort of this kind of woke, sort of technocratic, mm. managerial style of politics to their own end. And, you know, I suppose fair play to them because they know they can get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, we have to take a stand against this stuff. But, you know, they, they, they know that this is how our system works. This is the weakness in our in our system and they're, and they're able to exploit it. Ella. Yeah, on the one hand, it feels incredibly banal and toothless in a way, the idea that you would be banging on the school gates about safeguarding and pretty trivial things about children's self-esteem and being, in looking at these kind of cartoons. On the other hand, I mean, you use the word dangerous. It, it can't have escaped, or perhaps it has escaped most people, that we are still, most of us, reeling from the murder of Samuel Paty for doing a very similar thing of showing a classroom of students. You know, there hasn't been a huge amount of information leaking out of this scenario in Batley, apart from scandalously the teacher's name, putting him in danger. But it's alleged that it was Charlie Hebdo images that were shown. And so doing this, Samuel Paty doing the same thing was, you know, beheaded in broad daylight. And that's not to suggest that these people banging on the gates of Batley Grammar are going to do a similar thing. But the fact that the school essentially, you know, the employer, someone who's meant to protect their staff member, essentially shafted him and then failed to either physically or emotionally or, you know, financially protect him from any of this, from the onslaught of attacks he's had, is absolutely scandalous. And, you know, it's been really awful to hear how upset he is. And if I were him, I would be really shitting myself because not just for my own personal safety, but also because the cowardice, as Brenton has said, surrounding this issue and the lack of people coming forward to support him has been really, really shocking. But just on a broader, more abstract point, because you've both you know, made the great points about free speech and tolerance to religious intolerance in many ways, but it also strikes me that this just says something about the way in which the relationship between parents and schools has changed because there's been a few of these kinds of things popping up over the last few years, whether it be protests around what kids are taught in relation to sex education or what kind of books kids are taught and parents complaining. And the fact that, I mean, part of the group outside Batley Grammar aren't, as you said, aren't parents, there's like local imams or people who've got a gripe and want to get involved in this protest. But some of them are parents. And this, the kind of suggestion is that the school's authority to be able to maintain some sense of being in control of the curriculum, making a decision about what children in the British educational system get taught, you know, having some kind of separate control over the way in which children are educated outside of the of the home, outside of the remit of parental authority, has just completely broken down. And in fact, the head teacher of Batley Grammar is the most guilty of that because he's almost, it seems like, without question, without consideration, has just caved immediately and not only said that this teacher is suspended, but suspending that particular class and reviewing the curriculum for it. There's no defence of the idea that actually, rather than this very small group of parents who have complained, that the school might know better what is an appropriate thing to teach the kids. And that actually in a, you know, a decade in which we've had a rise of Islamist attacks and Islamist attacks against the magazine Charlie Hebdo for allegedly blaspheming, 
it might be relevant in a religious studies class to talk about this issue, whether or not it does or doesn't hurt people's feelings. I mean, even the sense that you living in a largely secular society, that children who have religious faith should be treated with respect, but should also be open to the fact that there is a large possibility that once they leave school, their very dearly held beliefs are going to be mocked, are going to be ridiculed, are going to be made shit of. And that's life. Having these kinds of discussions in the classroom can actually be, sorry to use the term, a safe space where (laughs) under the remit of a good teacher that kids can work through these kinds of ideas. And this is what education is meant to be about in part, isn't it? It's meant to be about preparing kids for dealing with real life. It has to be mentioned that the heroes in all of this, you know, surprisingly, or perhaps unsurprisingly, are the kids themselves because there was that petition that was circulated allegedly by a Batley Grammar School kid. It's now got thousands of signatures essentially saying what you wish any number of the adults involved in this scandal would have said, which is that we know our teacher, we're really upset that he's been treated like this, he's not a racist, and most importantly, the best line of the petition is where the student said, we think that some of the images in the Charlie Hebdo magazines and depictions of Muhammad in this way are racist, but we're not afraid of talking about that. What we want to talk about is the fact that beating racism will never happen in a, in a world in which you shy away from dealing with difficult issues. And so, you know, the fact that it's taking kids to have the courage to take the right political stance in this rather than the teachers or their parents or politicians or commentators tells you a lot about the state that we're in. Absolutely. Brendan, I really like that petition too. I thought the kids. Well, the kids are stepping into the moral vacuum left by the cowardly adults of the world. And that's the, that's the problem here. I think just to, on this issue, I think we do really have to get to grips with how serious it is because, because it does look ridiculous and it can be tempted to be lulled into a sense of its ridiculousness. When you see these blokes, lots of them are young men in their twenties outside the school gates shouting their heads off because they're so offended. I mean, it is kind of pathetic. Over a cartoon. Over a cartoon. I mean, it is so tragic and pathetic. So you you kind of want to laugh, but it is also very serious. And of course, you know, you can understand that people will feel offended when their deeply held religious beliefs are called into question. Although I was brought up a Catholic and I think Piss Christ is a wonderful work of art. I know that will be very controversial to our Christian listeners, but it is possible to appreciate these things that are at a level that is removed. It is possible to see the Charlie Hebdo cartoons, not necessarily as wonderful pieces of art, but as necessary forms of provocation in a society in which we're increasingly told that it is racist to criticize a particular religion, that it is unacceptable to make fun of Muhammad, that you can be arrested in some cases for making fun of Islam or making fun of Muhammad. In that kind of world, I think Charlie Hebdo plays an incredibly important role and satire plays an incredibly important role too. But it's very serious. We have a situation where a teacher is in hiding, fearing for his life, for showing kids an image of a 7th century prophet that is simply completely and utterly unacceptable in the 21st century and anyone who is failing to say it's unacceptable, I'm afraid they've kind of sold their souls to the devil and are failing in their duty to defend the freedom of every citizen in society to think and say what they want. You're listening to the Spiked podcast. This podcast, like all of Spiked's content, is free. There's no paywalls or no paid subscriptions. 
We rely on the support of our loyal listeners and readers like yourself to keep producing our groundbreaking podcasts, interviews, articles, essays, and more. So if you're a regular listener to our show, please do consider donating to Spiked, or even better, becoming a regular donor. Even £5 per month can make an enormous difference. To start your regular donation today, just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spikes-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, back to the Spike podcast. Government ministers are drawing up a list of places where it could become essential to show a COVID status certificate or vaccine passport. All the current COVID restrictions are set to be lifted on the 21st of June and every adult will have been offered a vaccine by the end of July. But the government may also demand proof of vaccination, antibodies or a negative COVID test to allow access to certain venues and services. Despite repeated and quite strong denials from ministers, Michael Gove is expected to announce the scheme on Monday. Ella, what have your thoughts been on this? Throughout the last year on this podcast and elsewhere on Spiked, we've talked about the fact that so much of the the government's restrictions and its moves to you know tinker with the way in which it deals with restrictions and guidance throughout the pandemic has proven how little they trust the public and how ill thought out some of this supposedly you know following the science guidelines are and this is quite clearly one of them you know at a time in which more and more people have had the vaccine in which we're told that we're supposed to be celebrating the rollout of the vaccine program that the cases of coronavirus are you know, dropping by the day that in fact, the now that the weather's getting better, people are meeting outside more, people are getting more used to the fact of dealing with the roadmap as we've had it dictated to us, that you would bring in such a illiberal, such a restrictive and such a practically, you know, nightmarish thing like vaccine passports, your jaw hangs open and you think, what the hell is going on in the British government? You could maybe understand if this was framed in terms of a means through which the government was just so desperate to get us going again, that they were using the vaccine passports as a means to speed up that process. So, you know, let's at least get the people who have had the vaccine going and out there and let's at least open up some things. Maybe you could understand it in that kind of context. But of course, we know that in fact, the drive to open up society is severely lacking in the government's approach, that most of the way in which the roadmap is set out is that things should not happen before a certain date. It's all very negative. It's all very much the precautionary principle. It's not just something that defines the European Union's approach to this pandemic, but it's also deeply embedded in the British government's sense of how to deal with the British public. So, you know, even in those terms, if you were wanting to be generous, it doesn't work. But also in an abstract thing, I mean, we have to kind of zoom out away from our immediate experience of the pandemic and coronavirus and look at the idea that you would either have employers or companies or, you know, you know, pubs or wherever it was, demanding to see personal data from a citizen. I mean, this is where you have to start to sound like a real libertarian, because the idea of that is not only chilling, but it's also, you know, where does it end? At what point do we say that there are certain things that are private to citizens and there are certain things that are within people's own, you know, freedom of conscience, freedom of choice to make these decisions? You know, no one, I think, sensible supports the idea that you would hold people down and stick a needle in their arm 
even all of us on this podcast are pro-vaccine and think that we should have it, think that it's a good idea, but you wouldn't hold someone down and coerce them. Well, vaccine passports are not quite holding someone down and jabbing a needle in their arm, but it is a form of coercion. And as many people have pointed out, one of the biggest problems at the moment with the vaccine rollout is that there are certain sections of society that are still unwilling to get it, one of them being black and ethnic minorities. And therefore, if you introduce a vaccine passport, you inevitably introduce a kind of two-tier system in which large sections of society don't get to access the resources that others have. So it's a nightmare. And the most awful part of it is that it is simply unnecessary. At a time in which there is a huge amount to celebrate, it looks like, you know, fingers crossed, touching word, with all the superstitions you like, that the prospect of a third wave is still only very much a prospect or a, a worry and not a reality, that actually we're doing very well to get out of this pandemic. And so to throw something like this in at the moment seems inexplicable. It's also notable that, you know, in terms of an opposition, <laughs> you've got Keir Starmer speaking to the Daily Telegraph yesterday, talking about the fact that vaccine passports to go into pubs would go against the British instinct. Not only is that a week too late, but it's also not responding in any serious or democratic way, challenging the government on this. It's a flippant remark made in the Telegraph. So in Parliament, when these things get brought up and when these restrictions um, get floated, there is no political opposition. There is no space for debate on this. So it's a really depressing picture. Absolutely. I think one of the points you've made very well there, Elo, is that it's about, you know, it's coercive. And, and you know, the two things that have defined the government's approach to the pandemic have been excessive precaution, but also that it's all been entirely punitive. And it's, it's very strange because, you know, someone quite cleverly put it on Twitter. You know, you have this kind of carrot and stick approach, but if the carrots are the vaccine, people are going absolutely crazy for the carrots. So why on earth do you need the stick? Why do you need that element of punishment? People do want to get vaccinated. Vaccine hesitancy is, is going down constantly. I, you know, I've had numerous conversations with people who have said, oh, I'm not sure about the vaccine. But then as soon as it comes up to get their appointment, they just take it. This idea that, that people don't want the vaccine has been completely overblown, ridiculously out of proportion, like many of the fears over the past year. It's addressing a problem that doesn't exist, but unfortunately the government's instincts are very authoritarian. They are to say, well, we can't trust people to do the right thing. We have to essentially punish them for doing the wrong thing with ridiculous fines. We had the fine recently for £5,000 for trying to leave the country without a reasonable excuse. Yes, you can go and meet people in the park from this week onwards, but you can still be fined £10,000 if you organise a party of more than 15 people. And you can be sent to jail for 10 years if you lie on a form coming into the country. So we need to absolutely stand up to this just punitive aspect to the way of dealing with the pandemic, because that actually, you know, throughout this year has been a missed opportunity, a missed opportunity for solidarity, a missed opportunity to encourage people, you know, to volunteer in hospitals, in helping people shield and I think, you know, we could have approached this with such a more kind of positive and can-do attitude, but instead the government just prefers to lock us down, keep us all away from each other and keep us fearful. And that ultimately, as we've seen, hasn't worked very well, Brendan. The final point I would make more broadly is I think this points to the failures of the past year in relation to people holding the government's feet to the fire on the question of freedom. Because, you know, some of us who said, 
yes, restrictions will be necessary. Yes, this is a very serious virus. Changes to behavior will have to take place. But let's not forget how important freedom is. Let's not forget how important democracy is. And let's keep the pressure on the government to tell us when these things are coming back in full form and when we will have all of those freedoms returned to us. We were ignored. We were demonized. We were referred to as lockdown deniers or COVID deniers including by people who define themselves as classical liberals or as libertarians or people who are often usually quite socially critical. They abandoned their critical faculties, nodded along to everything and just shouted at the people who were saying, don't forget about freedom. And our warnings proved to be right, which is that if you give the government this much power, they will be reluctant to give it back. They will be reluctant to go back to normal. And vaccine passports, I think, are the clearest example, well, they're one clear example, I should say, of taking the unusual authoritarianism of the past year and pushing it forward into the future and changing the relationship between the state and the individual so that we now essentially have to show our papers to go about our daily business. That's come about because the government has a taste for authoritarianism and because people who should have been talking about freedom for the past year stopped talking about it. And all of this should be a reminder to everyone that the kind of thing Spiked was doing, which was saying, this is serious and we all need to focus on how to tackle COVID. But at the same time, we need to make the case for freedom and democracy. That is the best way to approach a crisis like COVID-19. Thank you for listening to the Spiked Podcast. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, make sure you keep up with all the latest from Spiked by signing up to our daily newsletter today on Spiked. Just go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters to sign up now. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. 